it was amazing. You know, just this this crescendo of emotion of everything about that entire chunk of my life reaching a climax and the celebration afterwards into the night and then into the morning. And then the next morning, you know what I did? I woke up, put on some coffee, took a shit, just like any other day. It's not the things changing that get to you. It's the things that don't. Welcome to the Marmoset Chronicles, a personal retrospective, a podcast about the titular movies by Laz Patillo. Uh, to this week, we are talking about And the Mountain Came to Them. I'm Jay, and I'm joined, as always, by Kirsten. Hi, Kirsten. Hi, Jay. Uh, that, I think, is a good quote to start us off with. Um, I think uh, there's it's a lot... heavy. To, it's heavy. There's a lot to unpack there, but also... Um, you know, it really, really awkwardly drops the word shit in it, which, um, I think that, that kind of, that, that, that's pretty, um, indicative of how some people feel this movie is. Movie six. Movie five. Movie five? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> you're good, you're good. You're right. You said it right in the beginning. I know. I, uh, welcome. Um, I, I just got back from my uh, from my time vortex where I was uh, recording next week's episode. The very same one we teased in the, the teaser for the show. Yes. The time vortex comes. The time hole has returned to us. <laughs> and the time hole this is... came to them. All right. Uh, so uh, how you doing, Jay? You ready for this one? Yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm feeling honestly pretty like hyped about getting stuff out there and like getting you know i've been i've been writing a lot today i've been doing stream stuff all week i'm very in the mode to like make stuff and i think that was kind of a mode Laz patillo was looking to engage more heavily in when he made this one after the strange emotional quagmire that was the shadow kit i i think he was kind of looking to get that spark back and that's probably why he uh you know in a <laughs> In a in a lunch that will live in infamy, he uh, he invited one William Friedkin, director of uh, The Exorcist and The French Connection, to uh, direct the next movie alongside him. Uh, yeah, I to be a fly on the wall in that particular room. Um, <laughs> I don't know really why this happened. Um, I don't know how much of it was Laz's decision. Uh, I kind of constrict can um, I kind of um. Uh, subscribe to some of the, those conspiracy theories that, like, this was way more, like, studio strong-arming after how, uh, weird, uh, the Shadow Kit turned out. Mm. But, uh, you know, we certainly got a one-of-a-kind product out of it. Uh, there's never gonna <laughs> yeah. be a movie quite like this one again. Absolutely not. Like, it, it, it's so funny. So, I have, I, I don't know, you know, get right off the bat, William, William Friedkin, you know, made stuff like, again, The Exorcist, has made, has made it, like, is very fascinated with a lot of darker themes and what I've seen. I haven't seen a lot of the guy's movies, to be honest. I've seen The Exorcist. Uh, I think I saw The French Connection, but I don't remember anything about it. I believe those are his only movies I've seen. Um, but, like, he, you know, he is a much darker guy. Like, Laz Patillo... I don't know if I would describe him very often as a super dark director. He handles serious themes, but he's not mm -hmm. trying to, like, constantly capture the humanity at their worst the way some directors do. Yeah. And it, and from the way this movie is, and just from, like, you know, bits of interviews with the cast and stuff, it seems like Friedkin was more interested in that and kind of pulled him a little more in that direction for the purposes of this movie. Yeah. Um, I... I agree with all of that. I, I, I just, I, this, like, 
sincerely, this is a, one of the weirdest choices in co-director that I think could have come out of this movie. Mostly because these guys really don't have anything in common artistically. <laughs> Not at all! Other than other than the time frame in which they were making movies, like, you know, all, both of their... The Exorcist came out in, I wanna say... 73? 72? Uh, that was 73, yeah. Ha, uh, look at that, right off the top of my head. Totally didn't Google yeah. that uh, beforehand. I'm totally not looking at the guy's IMDb page as we speak. Oh, yeah. Um, but that, um, other than the fact that, you know, they were kind of making movies around the same time, you know, you really would have thought that one of the action guys of the time would have teamed up with Laz Patillo because, sure. you know, he was known for his intricately choreographed uh, fight scenes like we've talked about. Um... And the thing is, I don't really know if I would call this movie dark. At least not dark in the way The Exorcist is dark. Certainly not. Yeah, no. But, like, I, I, I think yes, but also, like, I, it does feel a little bit... I, I don't know if I'd say it's a tug-of-war. I don't know if this necessarily feels like a movie where two people are fighting for control. I would say, you know... It's a debate. It's not a tug yeah. of war. In this movie, this movie is kind of a uh, a battlefield in which these two directors are, are are both trying to convince you into their way of thinking, of their individual ways of thinking. Yes, saying, yes, right? yes, so yes. That, that's yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, and, and there, there's parts where that work, and there are parts where that doesn't work. Um, this is <laughs> this is another point where. Uh, <laughs> To refer to when we were talking about Diagnosis Aquamarine, oh, if vampires are just real in this universe, it would explain some other stuff that happens in later movies. This is this kind of has some of that in it because this is this is the one where Georgie just encounters some people with a uh, a dose of magical realism to them. I, I feel like this is one, and this is this isn't. I don't think a um, hallmark of his co-director, but this is one where he seems to have allowed more like tones of magical realism to come yeah. to the forefront and it, it almost feels like he you know it feels like he's coming too close to the dark side of the force a little bit in this movie and, yeah and, and and i i don't know who to chalk that up to i i that doesn't seem like something laz patillo would do so maybe it's william freakin but again i, I haven't watched a bunch of william freakin stuff so who knows you know what this movie kind of reminds me of like mm-hmm. in its tone um mm-hmm. Stephen King? Yeah, yeah, I could, I mean... But not Stephen King when he's in, like, full horror mode. Kind of the build-up to the horror reveal in a Stephen King book where, you know, you know, you, like, read a Stephen King story and you just... He's, he's really good at, like, immediately creating this tone of uncanniness. Sure, yeah. Um, Th- there's... That there's like you know a family that clearly has some stuff wrong, but the mechanics of the of that wrongness is sort of examined from different perspectives. I, I have not read a lot of King. I'm kind of just thinking about The Shining when I talk about this. Like that that's a good one where it takes a while for the horror stuff to really kick in, even if you learn about The Shining itself early on. But the unease around Jack Torrance and his family is 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 a system that he's built. It's a machine with these three main elements, which are you know. Him and Danny and um, uh, and his wife. Well, yeah, I, I think there's that it, that definitely that kind of element happens in this mm-hmm. with the 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 setup between characters and 
the fact that it feels like everyone's very apparently already falling apart a little bit before they even come on screen from wherever they've been. And, you know, we know where Georgie's been, but wherever any of them have been and all they need is something to tip them over the edge. And that's the movie's job is to be the tipping thing. Yeah. And, you know, just like uh, this is uh, follow me. Did you see Dr. Sleep? Uh, no, I did not actually. Okay. Uh, Doctor Sleep actually way better movie than I thought it would be. Um, really? Yeah, there's a lot of things to like about that movie. I enjoyed it a lot. Would 100% recommend that you go see it. Um, especially, especially if you uh, kind of don't like some of the more Stephen King aspects of Stephen King. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> you have pinned me. Uh, you have pegged me to a T. Uh, because this is a, a later story that he wrote, and uh, you can tell that he's in a much better like mindset when he's writing it, and it's huh, yeah. uh, mainly a story... After the drugs. He, you know, it's a story that's mostly about sobriety and like letting sure. go of your like horrible dad issues. There is... The, the, the point I'm you know, sneaking along to is that there's a, uh, a group of, they're sort of vampires in the book, uh, in, in, um, they're sort of vampires in this story, but they're also kind of like this, like, kind of, ro like, traveling family of weirdos, and their aesthetic is actually really nice, and it reminds me a lot of the, uh, the family and the characters that they stumble upon here, where everything seems very kind of happy and buoyant, but uh, you kind of get the sense that these people have murdered some people. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. There's the fact they've definitely murdered some people, and then there's the implication around the... Um Never explicitly <laughs> said, but a little more explicitly said than you would expect from the last Patilla movie. Idea that some of them may or may not even be real. <laughs> yeah. There's also that. And, 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 there, and there's that, like, exchange of... If that's the case and they have killed people, what is the exchange of life happening there? Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting what they do with that setup in this movie. Yes. And, you know, this, I also like, I love the setting of this movie. I like that it's kind of like the exact opposite of Obstacle Core. Obstacle Core is like this dark, weird city. And this takes, this is in like weird mountainscapes. Yeah. Like, we're, we're in nature, and everything is just in, we got, like, beautifully shot trees. Like, have you ever, have you ever wanted to see a pine tree shot by Laz Batillo? Congratulations, <laughs> you can have six. You can, you can have a whole 12-month calendar worth of those <laughs> with extras to spare. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in, like, the foot of the Adirondacks in, in upstate New York, and so, like, I, <coughs> this movie has some of my favorite imagery just in the sense of, like, seeing that kind of locale captured mm -hmm. really beautifully in ways other than just like if you're let's say doing an episode of a po police procedural where an investigator has to go to a place like that you'd get like a couple sweeping you know shots of a mountain and some forest from like up above in, in like a helicopter and that'd kind of be it Laz Matillo, I I actually don't know offhand where they went to shoot this movie but Laz Patillo, or maybe both of them, or maybe the cinematographer, clearly just really fucking liked it there. <laughs> because there are so many intimate shots and intimate ways of filming the woods around the, the main house and, you know, the little town they go to a couple times. And, like, it, it's weird to think about using shots of mountains from far away in interesting perspective ways. Because, like, when you see a mountain in the distance, you know, 
it's a mountain. <laughs> like, it kind of... The mountain comes to you, is, is my joke there. But, like, you know, you, you know what that looks like. But, like, there are these really interesting... In, in You know, in the behind the scenes, you see shots of, like, the cinematographer getting down on his belly, getting these really interesting angled shots. Yeah. Uh, in order to capture, like, the sloping mountains from this angle that positions them... Like, they're cradling the house that you're trying to focus in on. Yeah. Just a lot of very interesting contrast tricks are done with that setting. I I think they get a lot out of these mountains. I think it's in Colorado somewhere, but I don't know that for sure. Um, I just looked it up. I'm pretty sure it's British Columbia. No shit. Okay. Huh. I think it's in Canada. That makes sense. Huh. A lot of a lot of stuff is filmed in British Columbia. Um, sure. I, I think it's just easy to film there. Um, yeah. Or it's some yeah. tax reason. Absolutely. So, like, something about this movie, I, I, there's a lot of things that interest, so, you know, William Friedkin was a co-director, but not co-writer on this. This was still written all by Laz Patillo. Um, at least on the books, that's the case. Yes, which Um, creates a weird dynamic, I think. So, I was gonna ask you, do you feel like, even though explicitly in the credits it is just Laz Patillo who wrote the thing, Mm -hmm. do you feel like there is... In influenced by having a second director on the script itself from your, your viewings of this movie. On the script itself, only the things that got cut, if that makes sense. Mm, um, there's yeah, a lot, okay. There's a lot less of the, like, those, like, comical turns of dialogue that we've mentioned before. Um, sure. There's a lot less of the weird sort of physical comedy moments that Laz likes to sprinkle within his... Um, his movies. Um, so I think I think Friedkin had a big hand in cutting those little moments, probably, you know, for, you know, tonal unity. Um, not necessarily a bad thing. But I I do think that this was mostly written or entirely written by Patillo. Um, yeah. I yeah. don't... Uh, because I, I'm also of the opinion that all of these movies were at least in a first draft phase when Patillo made The Phantom and the Wren. That's... Yeah, I I agree with you up to a point. We'll get to it. I, I frequently wonder about that with his final movie, but I... I Otherwise, I, I definitely agree. He definitely, I mean, we've talked about that, right? Like, he ha- he's had the roadmap. I think there's yeah. points where the roadmap diverges and I, from what he, reg- or, I'm sorry. I think there are points where the movies diverge from that roadmap. I don't know if this is one. Um, it doesn't overly, like, I, I agree with you. I don't think it feels too much like Freakin had that big a role other than, like you said, what is cut out. Um, I think that's, that's, that's very apt. Yeah, so, like, so this movie, this movie's darker yeah, for him, it's it's like you said, it's it's not Exorcist dark, but it is a hair darker. It does feel more brutal in certain ways, and you know we've seen that before at this point. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the Phantom in the Red is pretty fucking brutal. Th- this this to me feels very much like William Friedkin's favorite movie of Laz's ones in this series was the Phantom in the Red, and Friedkin had ideas of what he would have done from there based on that single movie. Kind of like how J.J. Abrams made Rise of Skywalker, just ignoring uh, there had been other movies since his last Star Wars movie. I feel like William Friedkin worked on this movie with Patillo, not ignoring, but putting aside the fact that there were other movies after The Phantom and the Red. I think at its best moments, this movie is able to combine the really gritty groundedness of the Phantom and the Wren with the uh, kind of 
incredibly raw emotional honesty that came from Diagnosis Aquamarine. Mm-hmm. I think in its best moments, those two tones are married and it, it, it makes sense to me that when you're marrying those two tones, you get a darker movie. Sure. And then there are moments where it sort of feels more like a philosophical battleground than a movie. But those moments are few and far between, and honestly, I kind of like them, so... I I do too, yeah. Um, I'm not going to complain that much about them. I'm not one of those people who really hates this movie. I like this movie pretty solidly. It's funny that we're so on the page about this one, on the same page about this one after last time, because I'm completely with you. This is one, you know, like... I, I'm realizing as we talk about, the, like you, as we use this show as a way to talk about media in general, I I will always just enjoy seeing things that I can unpack in the sense mm-hmm. of like what the directors were going through and writers were going through, and I, I I love unpacking the flaws of this movie in the context of these two men working together. I I, yeah. I think there's just so much to that. Like I don't think it has the best story. I think it gets really fucking goofy in the climax, which we can come back to. But like I I I, I enjoy unpacking that more than I care about those things. Okay. That sometimes suck. I guess. Um, you know, I don't even think they suck. It's just that, like, they're, it's a very strangely paced movie, and I think that turns a lot of people off. You, you know what the pacing almost reminds me of? Uh, did you see Swiss Army Man? Did I see Swiss Army Man? I f- <laughs> that's, the one, that's the one where Daniel Radcliffe plays a corpse. Uh, I did not. I, I, still, I still haven't seen anything Daniel Radcliffe was in besides Harry Potter, I don't think. Jay genuinely go watch Swiss Army Man. It is one of the most singular viewing experiences you will ever, ever watch. Sure. Um, okay. I will do that tonight if it's streaming somewhere. I I don't know if I ever want to watch it again. I saw it in theaters and I've never felt the, a particular need to go back to it. But mm. it's, it's one of the most singular movies you're going to ever see in your life. But it's a very strangely paced movie as well. And it sometimes kind of just stops to chat with you. I, I, I kind of like that, or I, I don't know, I, I think that can be a good thing, depending on... Absolutely. Depending, because, on, depending on what that conversation is, because, right? Because strangely paced doesn't mean bad, and I think in this movie, God, it, no. in, in this movie, and The Mountain Came to Them, it doesn't mean bad, but, you know, sometimes this movie just kind of sits down to chat, and that works, because, you know, finally in this movie, um, Georgie makes a friend who is named and sticks around and doesn't die, this is where we get Jean. Yeah, I love, I love Jean, I think Jean's great. Everyone loves Jean. Everyone loves Gene. Gene's a great character. Um, and he's a great foil for Georgie. And it's great to kind of watch their interactions deepen as this friendship grows throughout the movie. As these two men try to navigate this absolutely bizarre situation that they are now in. Yeah, I, I, you know, Gene is great. Gene is like... At first, it feels like, oh, is he just going to be a weird comic relief character? Because this is at a point where Georgie, you know... Georgie is is can be a funny guy certainly um I here's a hot take I think Georgie is at his best what if the main character of Drive was a good character um I'm sorry that's not fair what if the main character of Drive was a more interesting character I I think there's interesting parallels there but um you know Georgie is a bit of a heavier character he takes things more seriously Gene comes in as a very good foil because I, I like that they don't just play it as he's the goofy guy alongside him. No, he also has like some really, some, you know, very personal issues. The, the, the quote from the beginning is from him. That is him talking about how he feels like he he brings a lot of levity 
But I think, and this will be explored when he comes back again, I think that is in large part because he feels like he has to in order for the weight of things to not become so crushing that he collapses under it. Yeah. And that is... That is so goddamn human. Like, that is... That is one of the most brutally honest and human things in this pretty brutally honest and human series of films. And I also, I appreciate that this is probably, this is probably the closest to, like, a lawful good character, so to speak, that, or like yeah, a, like, totally. like an absolute, not, not quite lawful good, but a totally good aligned character that we get in this movie. Yeah, definitely. Gene is refreshingly free of Shades of Grey. Not that he lacks nuance, but, you know, he's not a violent person the way a lot of characters in these movies are violent people. Which, and I think that makes sense that, you know, he's coming in as they get further away from, like, the human center of the world. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting... Yeah, it, it, they, they need something to, uh, to still bring that humanity forward, and he becomes a really good me- uh, mechanism for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I also think that's interesting because Georgie, you know, it will continue to come up that this is a series about Georgie slowly having to face his own judgments and judgment calls more and more harshly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this this movie is is about that, but not the most about that out of any of them. But, it, you know, it, it's 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 in there. It's it's a slowly building force that we'll continue to build as we get into the, the last, the latter three movies. Um, Gene, like you said, he, like, I, I would say to, to, to bounce off what you said about Gene being black and white, no shades of gray, Georgie is all shades of gray. And this series, a lot of the time, is about life sticking his face in those shades of gray and shouting at him to differentiate between him and him getting to the point where eventually he has to admit that he just fucking sometimes can't. Yeah. Like, and, and I, and that is one of the great triumphs of this series of film. Yeah. Um, I like Gene because his absolutes, his sense of morality, his sense of right and wrong. Gene has an arc, you know, Gene sort of has his own little arc through the couple of these movies he's in, but it's not about questioning that because I, Laz Patillo cares so much about each one of his characters as a person. Yeah. Um, th- that, I I think Laz Patillo definitely like wouldn't want that attention to be taken away from Georgie by having another character also going through that. Not yet, you know. There, there's we'll get to some other stuff with other characters later later on. But for right now, he's just interested in moving Georgie along that plot line, and you know, Gene isn't for that because Georgie's already for that. And I've I've heard some people criticize Gene's character for being too, you know, having too much of a sense of moral. For the world he's a part of, and I couldn't disagree with that more. I think he's pivotal because yeah. he has that. And I think another important part, like you said, that, you know, this is sort of the, an overwhelming arc of this. these movies are Georgie kind of having to come to terms with the fact that sometimes he can't see outside of Shades of Grey. And I think it's also him coming to terms with the fact that that's okay and he can accept that part of himself yes. and move on. Um, which is something that's explored way more in movie 8... Um, explored painfully in movie eight. Whether it's explored successfully in movie eight has been, you know, that the, the a source of debate for people who are into film since it came out. But um, it's it's the final piece in a long running story in media. It will de- be debated upon until the sun swallows us all. <laughs> oh yes, but 
I think that starts coming up a lot in this movie, and I think that this is this is the movie where we start to see like the workings of this greater plot, this greater arc that's yeah. going to kind of drive the the last movies. Um, yes, and this idea that there is something more at work here, like yeah. something's been going on in the background of Georgie's adventures so far. And maybe we haven't been seeing them, or maybe we haven't been aware that we were seeing them, but they are there, and they're getting ready to strike, and this family is, this family that they run into is maybe the start of that? It's definitely a part of it. I mean, you know, so... I guess we should talk about the family for a minute. We have, we we have Archie, the, the sort of, you know, the, 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 the husband and the, the, the father and the, uh, the author, the, the, he's, he is this, this movie kind of pulls an ink heart where the basic idea is that he is this, this very, uh, accomplished writer. He's a novelist and also a journalist. He writes for the, like, local paper in the little town there. And, like, the, the way he as a, he as an author uh, interacts with members of his family, and the way like the way the way his own position and the things he has done influences how he interacts with his family is really interesting and kind of horrific at points because it's it's definitely a this guy feels superior to everyone around him, even the people he loves the most. And then we get into the strange stuff about those people that he loves the most, and you know, talking about the family. Already said it. Already said it once. There's the whole uh, never explicitly stated, but I think pretty explicitly stated in the by the movie uh, thread where it seems as though some of the people in that family, uh, Joshua and Tori, the two little boys, and uh, and maybe also his wife, are not actually real people. They are. I don't know. I have never read Inkheart. Is Inkheart about someone writing a story and people in it coming to life? I think not, that's what Inkheart's about. No. Uh, okay. I, then about, that reference doesn't work. Inkheart's about. Um. So that no, I was I was a little bit confused by that reference actually. Uh, Sorry. Because yeah. I was like, cause I thought you were maybe referring to a different character, but Inkheart's about um a girl and her father, and her father has this ability that he can if he reads a story out loud, he can read the characters into the real okay. world. Okay. Um, okay. But, that's what it is. Um. But he's not anyway, a writer. He, he restores old books, actually. Uh, speaking of not having a roadmap, those books definitely didn't. But, um, mm. yeah, we're doing a lot of... I feel like we've gone through, like, a, like a pop culture roulette this uh, this uh, episode. I feel like we've referenced a lot of things. Um, I feel like we do that every week, to be honest with you. Yes, but uh, more so more so this week. But my my favorite part about this, this idea that these... That these people aren't there is that it's Mm -hmm. not like oh they're hallucinations or oh they're ghosts i've always interpreted it interpreted it as like oh this guy has somehow magicked these people into being like scarlet witch style absolutely i mean and and that's i so to, to the end of the movie there's the montage shot of the police raiding the house after Everything has happened, and you see them, um, so there's this basement that, that we have, there's both a basement and an attic, um, and I like the duality of that, because through the movie there's a couple points where there is emphasis on both spaces as spaces that clearly something is happening in, but that are closed off, uh, to, to, closed off from Georgie and Jean, 
when they're in, in the points where they're in the house. But you have these people, you know, the, the police get in there after <clears throat> after this guy's arrested, after everything else, and um, it, it's not satanic and pentagrams, but it's it's these two sets that do so much storytelling and are the reason that the prominent accepted theory is that he magics these people into existence where it is just like th these these rooms that are covered from floor to walls to ceiling in typewriter paper filled with stuff he has written that is just dripping and has all these other things drawn across yeah. them in this red chalk and there's all these like scarlet red candles like yeah it, it, it it's not explicitly satanic and i don't think that's what las patillo is going for because i don't think he gives a shit about that but it is definitely meant to seem like a ritual or something supernatural has happened in these spaces and um, um and yeah i mean i i don't think he meant it as satanic i do think that's how some people took it there's a reason why this film was brought up a lot in you know 80s satanic panic and people yeah. tried to get it banned and mm -hmm. uh you know it wasn't as maligned as a lot of a lot of other media that got dragged in that particular piece of garbage moment in our pop culture history but um it, it you know it this really got under people's skin for some reason like I, I I I think I understand why. Like you know this you know it, it's not the first movie to ever have shocking and unsettling sets like that. But like it's a kind of set design and visual unsettlingness and horror that I think is more akin to stuff we see more often now. Like it almost seems like something uh, Ari Aster, the guy the guy who made Hereditary and Midsummer, would have made. Where it's you know it, it's not trying to invoke the fear of these like traditional religious symbols on you which is interesting because those symbols are something William Friedkin was definitely interested in it's trying to invoke a similar unsettling atmosphere on you through its own ideas like th through ideas that are very much its own and you know you can definitely feel you can feel feel this movie in some moments of hereditary i think sure i mean, th the end of hereditary like absolutely um but uh, i feel like this is we we're, we're kind of going through uh, uh, in my perception we're kind of going through a horror renaissance now uh there Definitely was there was a there was a long stretch of time in like the early to mid 2000s where just no good horror movies were coming out uh the ones that were were like horror comedies like there were no scary horror movies Really, yeah. um, I think I think the turning point was to reference a movie we've referenced before. It was kind of It Follows. That's definitely one of them. Yeah, wasn't The Conjuring kind of a big one for some people? I don't know. Yeah, love the Conjuring. No, the Conjuring I, th was, I think for some people it was. The Conjuring was it, the Conjuring's are just a good movie, but um, all stuff of like, and then people started like, you know, we were like, oh, we can we can remake this genre. And I think when people yeah. decided that, this is a movie they came back to to pull from. Definitely. Stuff like The Witch pulls from it. Yeah, a lot yes. of movies do. So this idea that, like, you know, here's Georgie, and Georgie is obviously the most, his most comfortable in cityscapes. Mm -hmm, definitely. He's, you know, whenever we see him uncomfortable is when he's not in a larger city setting. So basically the only movie he's comfortable in up till this point is Obstacle Core. Yeah. The whole point of The Phantom and the Rent is that he's uncomfortable the whole time. Mm -hmm. In, you know, in movie three, the point is also that he's uncomfortable and in his childhood home. And yes. yeah. where, where you can assume he grew up uncomfortable. And then, you know, movie four is its own monster. Uh, 
And, and the audience is uncomfortable. And the audience is uncomfortable. But he's certainly not <laughs> he's certainly not at ease in any of those scenes. Definitely not. I I, I think it's 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 that he doesn't like those settings and also that he doesn't trust the people who do like those settings. I, again, see his own family. <laughs> yes. And then so we take that character and then we move him to the middle of the woods. Almost like a camp setting. Yeah. And this happens, and it's this, you know, it's this kind of very sort of classic horror setup where he's in a town, and he picks up Gene, because he's going to be a nice guy and give this guy a lift. And then they bring yeah. their car breaks down, and now they're in this really weird situation with this really weird family. But yeah. at the same time, I think we get some of the moments where Georgie's the softest here. This is where we get the, um, like, the moments where he's interacting with the two little boys, uh, as unreal as they probably are, are mm-hmm. uh, are really genuinely sweet and I think speak a lot to who Georgie could be if he let himself kind of grow into these kindness that we see sometimes. Oh, absolutely. The revelation that Georgie is actually good with kids is, like, such a fascinating fifth dimension to his character. Yeah. Like, 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 like that, honestly, that, that was one of those things that when I first watched these as a teenager, that kind of element didn't really, kind of went over my head a little bit, but then, like, becoming an adult and, like, thinking more about, you know, interacting with with kids and also the way kids are written in a lot of media. I, I think that is such a revealing thing that they do there. Like, you know, he is a closed off motherfucker through the through all eight of these movies a lot of the time. Like he is he is the most inaccessible protagonist to ever have this much media that he stars in. Yeah. I don't you know, I think you might be right about that. I definitely believe that this character has a rich internal life that we are just not privy to. Does make me wonder what these these movies would be like written out as books. Um, God, yeah. Because uh, I feel like I feel like they would be kind of almost Hemingway esque. This this movie has a title that's oh. kind of Hemingway esque. It super is. And you know, for all the good and bad that that can bring. Uh, entertain me on a digression for a moment. Certainly, I will entertain you on a digression for a moment. Thank you. Um, you are, you are welcome. So <laughs> okay. We've been talking a lot about how the accepted theory here is that Archie's wife and the two little boys are fake in some way. They're constructed. How do we read this movie if that isn't true? Well, like like we said, this is an accepted reading, not necessarily the truth, because they don't come out and say that that these people aren't real. Right. Um... So, for one thing, Archie's a serial killer either way. Yeah. Because we, we, we understand by the by the end that he has killed many other people and like there there's there's the bodies that are discovered buried out in like this is they never explicitly say why this is, but I always I always just liked it as a strangely precise thing, is that he has killed and buried the bodies in a, in a circle in the radius around the entirety of this mountain that borders the edge of this town. Which, God knows how many miles Archie would have had to walk and drag them to do that. So, and so the, the ambiguity, right, and the reason, like, the reason that it's never called directly into, di- into dialogue question why, or whether they're constructed, is that the family is presumed dead, but no bodies are ever found. Or at least not in this text, the bodies have not been found. 
And the implication is, oh, they're probably buried with the rest, but then you see all this other stuff and all these other things, all these other elements and conversations from that the movie click together to imply, actually, no, the family something else happened to. Like, whether he, whether he killed his not-real family or undid them, unraveled them in some way is fascinating to think about. Um, yeah, I, I you know, he's a serial killer either way. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the question is... If they're not real, did he undo them or did something else external to him? D did he directly unmake them or did his actions somehow unmake them as collateral damage? Oh, I was kind of, um, I was kind of thought that Georgie released the quote unquote spell when, mm. when he, when he does that thing in the basement where he goes into the basement for the first time. Yeah, well, yeah, when when he busts through. And, yeah, do you, do you know that that yeah. that uh very strange deliberate movement he does where he kicks through the thing on the floor. Yeah, it, it's very um almost like, yeah, you know, the, the, almost like he knows what he's doing. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> almost like that, isn't it? So that's that's an interesting element too. Is I think he does know what he's doing after a certain point. I think that our our boy Mister Saint James does a lot of really fascinating um like just facial acting and man brooding and thinking about what's happening physical acting yeah <laughs> that that does a lot to feed into that suggestion that he does have some understand like he knows something we don't he does have a deeper understanding of whatever this this dark mystic side to this family and whatever's happening here is yeah uh, and i think if if you know the the family like isn't constructed and was real at some point. Like you said, they're obviously dead, and in that case, there's some, like, mass hallucination going on, and honestly, I like the magic, um, the, the, the magic, uh, angle better. Yeah, me too. Well, because, like, I, my problem with the mass hallucination thing has always been that makes some suspended bit of sense when it comes to the people living in the town but why would georgie and gene be involved yeah. in that they're outsiders like if that was the case i think the movie would be doing a lot more with the fact that georgie and gene are not from in this town it does do a lot of that that's why that is part of how georgie picks up on whatever he picks up on you know picks up on the fact that this guy's a fucking serial killer and also maybe the fact that his family is a manifestation of his writer's spirit or whatever you're right this is very stephen king um but I, okay, so we've talked a lot about the kind of the plot of this movie and the stuff that comes up in it. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about some of the meta aspects? Uh, the sure. how How this fits into the, the Grand Laz Patillo story? Into the Grand Laz Patillo story? I mean, yes. Yeah, so, you know, the lore around this is that even though their directorial styles are weird, he and William Friedkin did kind of, like, become friends over this. Like, they also had gigantic fights over making this, but they're, you know, they, they at least were, like, not on the worst terms after it, yeah. and that's nice. Like I said, purists don't really like this movie. Uh, for some reason, purists dislike this movie more than more than the shadow kit you can kind of tell what kind of person is making a list of these movies with whether or with what they put on the bottom of the list like mm -hmm, which one's yeah. uh, with which one's the worst movie and if they're putting this one on the bottom you know that like it's on there because there's a co-director and they just want Laz Patillo um yeah I think that this really needed to happen with this co-director or we were gonna get more weird metafiction thought experiments like the shadow kit and you know we just had a whole conversation about how that didn't work really 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think this is in my upper four. Honestly, I I, think, I also really like this movie. Um, I think and the mountain came to them probably slots in at a com- comfortable number four for me. Um, um it, it might be number three for me. Um, I think my no, it's it's also number four for me because my my favorite one is um seven, then Phantom and the Wren, then Obstacle Core, then this one. Yeah, that that's that's a that's that's a. That's an interesting list. I actually don't know what my entire one is. We, we can like rank these at the end in like a yes. postmortem episode. That might be a fun thing to do. Yes, absolutely. Um, um, yeah, but so like, so yeah, you know, talking about the meta, you mentioned earlier the whole theory that, uh, oh, and this is pretty well backed. It's more than a theory that the studio was as unsettled by whatever the fuck Shadow Kit was as a lot of us were, and so they they wanted. I don't know if they forced him specifically to have a co-director. I think they made a deal with him where he would have someone else to sort of be a check and balance on his work one way or another. Yes. Whether it was a co-director, a co-writer, a different, a more involved producer, uh, whatever it was. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, I think yeah. um, Last Patel is at his worst when he's too in his head. Definitely. Which is why I think this movie works. I like this movie a lot. Yeah, I, I do too. And, and I think... Um, I think he must have been given some choice in the matter because I, I I I do mean what I said at the beginning where I think you know I I think he likes his movies but I I think he came out of the shadow kit if if your thesis from last episode is correct feeling like he did what he set out to do but also probably seeing the audience reaction we know he has a turbulent relationship with that audience maybe looking to capture something that would at least move it in a different direction from that movie I I, I still don't think you know the audience means the most to him in terms of their opinions of that movie but. I think he still saw that as, oh, I should try and, like, find something that'll give me the spark to go in a in a different direction that's maybe a little more uh, akin to some of the earlier movies. Yeah. Which maybe was just something he wanted to do anyway. I think that if the studio completely strong-armed him and said, it's this or we won't fund the movie, um, I think... Because, you know, in later movies, we see what happens when he has straight-up studio meddling. And it mm-hmm. is an explosively angry Laz. And we don't get that here. We don't get explosively angry Laz. We get, like, kind of a weird sort of creative new take Laz. This is definitely a singular yeah. movie in the series. This is maybe the most experimental Laz gets. I, I don't know if the, but it's it's one of the. Like, it, it, it's fascinating. Yes. Uh, well, I'm not sure if it's the most experimental he gets, because it depends what you mean. It depends what you mean by experimental. I, I, I guess experimental with where he's at in his own canon. Because, like, definitely any of the movies can be called extremely experimental. Actually, I I guess I think 4 and and 5 are very experimental with the canon that leads up to them. I, I, I think... There's a turning point after uh, diagnosis, after after the first three, where where he starts trying these very different things, like in this one and the last one. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I I think this is the most fully realized deviation from the original understood tone of the first couple movies. Yeah. Um. Maybe it's my favorite, at least. I don't know if it's the most of of the ones that deviate from what the original movies were kind of not not what they're saying out to do, but like tonally are trying different things and and structurally are trying different things. I, I think this one is the most successful in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think it's and you know it's good. And at the end of the day, I think that's what matters most to me. Like, is it a good movie? And this yeah. is a good movie. Do you have any other kind of thoughts or feelings to get out? 
No, I, I, I'm good. I, I feel like we've we've hit on all the major stuff here. I'm glad that we agree that this one is good, actually, because I, I, I feel like it is sometimes one of the ones people do like to shit on, like you already said, because of the co-director thing. Sometimes you do get people who just, they want their lads and they want them now. <laughs> and I, I, I think that's fine, but it's also really fucking boring in a lot of ways. Like, not not even talking about co-directors, but just relationships between directors, I think, are often so fascinating. Like, yeah. um, you know, I'm a big, like, I'm a big Studio Ghibli fan. Hayao Miyazaki is obviously the main director behind those movies. You know, he do, he's done Spirit Away, Princess Mononoke, Totoro, all, all the big iconic ones. But that studio was originally him and um, Takahata, another director who did... Grave of the Fireflies, and a couple other smaller movies that generally weren't as successful. But the relationship between those two directors, like, I, I know this is a giant tangent. It's one thing to look look at that studio as Hayao Miyazaki's studio, where he makes his fun movies about why nature is good. With some of the most beautifully animated food you'll ever see in your life. This is true. <laughs> it's, God, that bacon in Howl's Moving Castle just makes me want to eat an entire pig. Um, <coughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but, but no, I think... It becomes more interesting when you look at what his priorities are versus what what Takahata's were when Takahata was in the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I and I I only bring that absolute tangent up because I think those kinds of relationships between directors who are peers like that are very interesting. And this a reason I like this movie so much is that Laz Batillo is such a goddamn hermit, literally now and figuratively at the time, but this was a rare case where he really did break through that hermititude and let someone further into his circle of trusted people midway through this franchise than he ever has really since and maybe ever again. And I, I just think... That that relationship's interesting. I really like that yes, relationship. Yes, and you know, and it's it's really nice to sometimes hear positive stories that aren't you know him and George Lucas having a screaming argument on the red carpet. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that that kind of sums up the rest of my feelings too. I I like this as a story. I like this as an exercise in tone. I like this as an entry in the Marmoset Chronicles. Um, so it works all around for me and. Uh, it you know it certainly yeah. has its has its place in in this canon. I yeah I think that just about does it. Kirsten, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kirsten M Writes. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Kirsten Mean Writes. Uh, right now I'm trying to write some sonnets and having some marginal success on it. Uh, that's mostly on Instagram. On Twitter, I've been, you know, occasionally screaming about White Wolf's storytelling system because I'm reading all the World of Darkness books. Um, so that's where I'm at. Uh, where can they find you on the internet, Jay? Sure, you can find me at uh, twitter.com slash extremesalsing. You can also find me on YouTube at Hi, I'm Jay. Also, we are on the Orange Groves Podcast Network, and this has been a really awesome a uh, couple of weeks for the network, we are continuing to do, um, last time I mentioned that we had started doing some charity streams. As we record this, we are on like consecutive day nine of every day someone from a podcast uh, streaming on their own Twitch channels and those being hosted by the Orange Groves one. With all of these streams uh, being part of the same charity team raising money for Feeding America, you've got st- Joe streaming a One Piece game, you've got, we did a fun Smash Bros tournament, uh, I've been doing a Pokemon ROM hack with some weird challenge rules, someone else is also doing a Pokemon Nuzlocke. There's just a lot of different types of things from different creators from across the Orange Groves all streaming towards this one good cause, so that's been really cool to see. Uh, twitch.tv slash theorangegroves. All right. 
And that's wonderful. Uh, and uh, I hope you're doing all right, listener. Uh, make sure you're taking care of yourself and your family and your community in this trying time. Um, and I do believe we're all going to get through this together. Um, we are. So uh, have a wonderful week. Watch this movie if you haven't. Why haven't you? Uh, and join us next week for when we're talking about The Marmoset Chronicles Movie 6, simply called Logica. Bye! And the mountain went away from them! Fuck you! As you get closer, you notice that there's like almost like a heat wave effect, that sort of like wobbly mm. stuff in your yeah, vision. I could, just, I could just touch it. I mean, you want me to touch it? I could touch it. You could just touch it. <laughs> Let's touch it together. Oh, we want to do rock, paper, scissors? Let's do rock, paper, scissors. Okay, ready? One, two, and then I touch it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a clip from Very Random Encounters, an RPG actual play podcast where we randomly determine as many details as possible. Every season is a completely new story, so we recommend starting off with the first episode of whatever season we're currently running. Once you realize it's your new favorite show, you can dig into the backlog and enjoy stories of strong alien women, communist superheroes, transgender skeletons, and other things that will scare your conservative uncle. That's Very Random Encounters. Find it at www.vre.show or in the usual places. Very Random Encounters.